This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. And on today's show, we're going to the furthest reaches of Northwestern Pennsylvania, to Erie, where we're going to hear how a cash-strapped community health organization is caring for refugees. What I see us trying to do is to educate our patients, raise their level of health literacy, and help them understand when it comes to the case of folks, the 80% who are better served in a language other than English, it's about understanding their culture and how they approach things and how we can be that bridge to help them acclimate to the U.S. health system. Today's show is the first of two episodes looking at refugee health care and how nurses fit into the equation, first in Erie, then Lancaster. In Erie and Lancaster, refugees have been resettling for years in greater numbers than bigger cities like Pittsburgh and Allentown. In Erie, the influx has helped fill in population losses. As in the rest of the Rust Belt, people have been leaving amid economic decline since the 60s. Erie is a small city, so it was different. <laughs> yeah, but we are used to and we are happy. We grow our family here and I have two daughters and they're adults now and they have daughters. One of my daughters has, so I have two granddaughters. <laughs> and we love Erie. Refugees leave their home communities, sometimes fleeing persecution and violence, and arrive grateful to be in a safer place and eager for the opportunities they've heard about the United States. But after years in camps or surrounded by violence, or usually both, many have substantial mental and physical health care needs, compounded by limited financial resources, language barriers, and cultural differences over virtually any aspect of healthcare one might imagine. Not to mention a reality far from the American dream they expected. When I first came in, in Chicago, there was not Nepali. We were like inside house for four days, all by ourselves. I remember my dad and my brother, like they're holding hands, walking in the street, looking for Nepali people because they don't speak English and um, it was really hard. And these types of challenges demand a very specific kind of healthcare delivery. In Erie, the go-to organization is the Multicultural Health Evaluation Delivery System, or MEDS. We are the primary care provider for incoming newly resettled refugees and immigrants. We're going to meet refugees working at MEDS as medical assistants, patient coordinators, and interpreters. To have so many refugees themselves on staff is unique, and it seems effective. We do even like a home visit to them, just to calm them down, help them what they need, explain how the life is going to be here, what they expect, just to relax them. And when they come here, we'll guide them about the paper for the school, their immunization, the driver license, the social security, and this stuff the International Institute will go with them to do. But we teach them, and they will be in touch with them whenever they need us, at least the first month or two months, the beginning. Uh, my community just like a big family to me. We're also going to hear from the organization's nurses and healthcare administrators about all it takes to run a clinic that has to address all of these needs for a population with very limited resources. 
Meds has been around since the 1970s, but mounting financial challenges brought it to the brink of bankruptcy in recent years. Our producer, Stephanie Marudas of Kuvinda Media, went out to Erie a year into the organizational restructuring intended to stabilize the agency. Stephanie talked with the CEO, Patty Stubber, and her staff and found a lot has changed already. Meds is about to expand, and Patty's launched some unique, ambitious initiatives with more to come. The organization's goals are not to merely stay afloat and maintain services, but to really improve patients' agency and outcomes. I met CEO Patty Stubber on a Monday morning as the clinic was opening. Patty is an early riser, and that's when she gets some of her work done before the demands of the day set in. The clinic is situated within a large red brick house. We're on Peach Street, which is a very busy, busy street, and we are south of 26th Street, but still within the city limits, and uh, we're within a neighborhood, but also near one of the resettlement agencies is only within a mile or so from, from meds. In the clinic, I noticed a large world map on the wall in the stairwell to the second floor, where Patty's office is. I asked her about it. We have a world map in front of us, and we have highlighted the countries of origin of meds patients as well as some of the refugee camps. For example, we have a large number of Bhutanese refugees. Their refugee camps were in eastern Nepal, so you'll see that. Some of our Burmese folks actually went to Thailand, and they were housed there for a number of years before coming here. The different African countries, we have Ethiopian and Eritrean refugees, Somalian refugees, Sudanese refugees. A lot of them were housed in Kenya. And in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, most of those refugees were internally displaced, as well as those from Tanzania. We have our migrant workers coming mostly from Mexico, Guatemala, and Puerto Rico. And we also have refugees coming in from the Ukraine, from Russia, from Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Poland, Bosnia. You can see they're coming from all over the world, and some are staying in refugee camps. Some are displaced to other cities near them, and then, of course, the Congolese are internally displaced. And can you tell us why you decided to put this map up? I thought it would be a good way for everyone to recognize where our patients are coming from and better be able to explain to some of the health profession students, physicians, clinicians, staff members, where our patients originate from. And when you see this, you know, this map of the world, it somehow brings it home. A lot of us forget our high school geography, let's face it, and a lot of the countries have changed their names and everything else. So I think it's just a good idea to see that they're from several different continents, several different countries, what their journey may have been. I know some of our Iraqi refugees may have been in Saudi Arabia. They may have gone over to Turkey to wait, or they may have been in Syria waiting. You never know what someone's story might be. No matter what their story is, refugees go through a similar process upon arrival. One of the first things refugees do when they arrive in the U.S. is go through a series of health screenings on top of the test and vaccinations that are part of the pre-arrival process. And in Erie, meds is their first stop. In the entrance to the building, Patty and I look at a sign full of information about various services that the clinic's refugee patients might end up needing. 
We're basically primary care, so we have general health and wellness and immunization, maternal child health. But when we're talking maternal child health, we're not talking obstetrics. We're talking primary care. We do HIV testing. We offer health education to Latinos who may have interest in drug and alcohol prevention. It's a specialized program for them. We provide health education to all of our patients, and then we also provide interpretation. We do have a local food pantry. We service that for our patients and others within that community. We are also a medical immigration service. So anyone who decides to immigrate has to have certain exams and immunizations and that sort of thing. So we service that program as well. And then the WIC programs, I mean, there's just a lot going on there. Yeah, we try to have as much as we can so that folks that aren't familiar with the city don't have to go out and uh, try to find out where they're going. In a lot of ways, the health center is a gateway for refugees in Erie as they transition into a new life. Patty points out another map on the wall that contains bus schedules for refugees who've been here long enough that they're comfortable getting around by themselves. New patients, generally, if they're coming in with a refugee program, the resettlement agencies bring them here so that they get where they need to be. Also, as part of the federally qualified health center system, we are required to provide transportation to them to get here if they don't have it. But as I said, the resettlement agencies usually do that. We have information on our patient board in several different languages, basically the languages that our patients speak. We are also, actually I just am submitting a grant to purchase smart technology for our waiting room and our boardroom so that we can provide culturally congruent health education in the waiting rooms. That way, yes, it's the television that a lot of the waiting rooms have, but this will be more appropriate for the patients we serve. That's the other thing you quickly notice about Meds and Patty and her staff. They're going for so many grants and delivering care from so many different angles, coordinating with so many partner agencies, it's almost dizzying. Not to mention, 80% of patients are served in a language other than English. Patty says interpreting takes time, and it's just one factor that makes scheduling more nuanced here than a more traditional healthcare setting. So we schedule our appointments in a way that patients have at least 20 minutes to see a physician for a recurring problem or something that's a little simpler. If it is a brand new patient, we double that. And there are other circumstances. If we have a, an extensive childhood exam, we'll double it. But between the front desk who schedule the appointments and the clinicians who actually conduct them and the nursing staff, everybody works together to make sure that we have the ideal mix. The other part of that is there's always going to be somebody that doesn't show up for an appointment. It's a balancing act, but we get to know who we need to call ahead of time. In comparison with other health centers, our rate has been pretty low at 15% of a no-show. I've seen it upwards of 40% or more in in other health centers, but we're trying numerous ways to keep it low because at the end of the day, if we have too many no-shows, we have wasted a lot of really precious resources. Patty says the way the health center operates has proved particularly effective for refugees. Those who've been here longer can help orient new arrivals, and the staff can often relate all too well to the trauma new arrivals might carry with them. Whether it's the stress and violence of the environment they may have fled from, or living in camps for years at a time in some cases. We need to make a good first impression. And by being not only friendly, but 
being culturally congruent, making them comfortable with trusted members of their community, their ethnic community, we do our best to provide as much service as well as guidance. So that, for example, if we send someone out somewhere, our interpreter generally goes with them so that they get that guidance and level of comfort as they have a procedure or an appointment that may be totally foreign to them. Patty says MEDS has access to a language line, which is a phone-based translation service. But that's often limited in its effectiveness because so much of communication is nonverbal, involving gestures, facial expression, tone of voice, and not just words you say. So MEDS is always trying to add interpreters to its roster. And some, often former patients, end up working in dual capacities, as a scheduler or getting credentials to be a medical assistant or nurse. That's the path Sarasoti Karki seems to be on. I talked to Sara just before she left for an off-site interpretation, and I noticed she had a tattoo on each of her forearms. I was curious, what's your oh, tattoos? Oh, it's the mommy's princess. Oh, on both sides? That's yeah. oh, okay. yeah. Gotta even I'll, them out. Yes, I love my parents. <laughs> I cannot, like, leave one. So it's just, like, one at a side. So how did yeah. you decide that mom, mommy's princess was going to go on the right? And no, it just, like, ended up like when that. When did you get those? Oh, it was, like, on my 18th birthday. Sara is now 25, and she's been living in the U.S. for nearly half her life. She was born in Nepal. My parents were born in Bhutan. They ended up in Nepal as a refugee because the government had some issue with the Nepalese people in Bhutan and they kicked them out from Bhutan, so they ended up in Nepal in a refugee camp. Sara's family was in the camp for 13 years. In our refugee camp in Nepal, like, the government helped us with the food and education. We went to school. My parents had to work outside of their house in a field to get the money. But I remember every, like, two weeks, the government gave us the food and stuff like that. So it was pretty hard for my parents to raise their kids. And what were your living arrangements? What kind of setting did you live in, like? Bamboo, and um, we made a house like that. You actually had to build it? My parents, they built it. When I hear this story, like when they first came in, I don't know which year it was, they don't have nothing. So they had to cut all of them. They had to build by themselves. So it was pretty hard for them. There were no technology, no phone, no nothing, no computers, nothing like that. We walked to our school like half an hour, like 45 minutes walking to get this school to walk back for the lunch. They don't provide lunch in school, so we have to come back home, eat lunch, and go back again to school. Ultimately, Sara's family was resettled to Chicago. There were no Nepali, so we were like having a hard time because we don't know no English, um, nothing, no communication or nothing like that. So it was pretty hard. The family spent three years in Chicago before moving to Erie after hearing about the smaller city's lower cost of living and solid Nepalese community. Sara finished high school in Erie and then went to work at meds. She says she's always wanted to be in the medical field since living in the refugee camp. In Nepal, like, to go in a hospital, we had a hospital, like the government hospital, but we don't have much more, like doctor, nurse, and stuff like that. So we have to pay out of pocket to go private clinic. 
and um, there is a lot of like when I one time I had this um, perfect example one of my friends she was paralyzed and I went to see her like in it's called her um, the city name called Damak I went there and the hospital the government hospital is it's really bad in condition like the patient is sleeping in the floor because there is no much more um, bed for the patient all kind of uh, medical issue like all kind of condition going all over in one room and then all after seeing all those like you know from like contagious like if they touch it they can like you know it's skin to skin and all those things and all of them in one room and all after seeing all those like when I came here it's so much better at meds, Sara was hired as an interpreter and then also started to handle referrals and scheduling. Now she's certified as a medical assistant and has her sights set on becoming a nurse. After high school, I wanted to go for RN, but I decided just to go for MA first and then start working because I'm the oldest kid in my house and I need, they need help. So after working here, I did not get a chance to go back to school. So now, like, I am having some opportunity to go back to school. So I'm planning to apply for it and go for RN and then nurse practitioner, hopefully, if I make it. (laughs) Sarah says she'd love to work at meds as a nurse. Sara and the rest of the staff largely represent the population the clinic serves, and they can work there while they're advancing their credentials. Patty says that's unique and something she tries to encourage in several ways. She's guiding Sara, for example, to consider programs that offer financial assistance. We take advantage of the state and federal programs that allow for loan repayment. For example, on the federal level, there's the National Health Service Corps and the National Nurse Corps. In the state of Pennsylvania, we also have the primary care loan repayment program. And what these programs do is provide, on the federal level, there are scholarships for nurses and physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs. There are scholarships and there are loan repayment programs. So the big thing is they must pay back by working in an area that has medically underserved people. And there are standards. One of the indicators was at least 40% of the patients had to be on the Medicaid program. 90% of our patients do. So, you know, we qualify. There are differences between the two programs that have to do with payback and part-time and all that sort of thing. But basically, we have two great programs available for health profession students who want to come and work at a health center. You know, getting loan repayment is big no matter what, no matter where they're going to work. But here they can have the warm fuzzy if they want to have that real upfront and personal patient care and still get their loans repaid. Patty also makes sure to get the message out when she's at colleges doing guest lectures. She says it can be a challenge to recruit because community health jobs typically pay less than those in other settings, and nurses often have student loans to repay. They also might want a different professional experience. I'll ask students how many of them are going into hospital, how many will be working in a health center arena, and pretty much over 90% of the students will indicate that they're going to go work in a hospital. Most will opt for intensive care, OR, ER, you know, some of the more challenging types of nursing, rather than working in a health center. 
Patty isn't a nurse herself, but she actually trained as a microbiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Then she worked in hospital labs before getting her MBA. Initially, she worked more on the business side of healthcare in home care agencies and supervising labs. Eventually, Patty went on to earn her doctorate and ended up running the Northwest Pennsylvania Area Health Education Center. That's when she got involved with the refugee population in Erie County. She started out volunteering with meds, and her involvement increased from there. I found it was a great fit because I loved global health, and it was a way to do it without leaving the country. I did try to retire. I did. Re- I actually successfully retired for a year, and then a year later, meds came to me and said, would you help us? Med serves 80% of patients in a language other than English, as Patty explains. The top language is Nepali and that is spoken by our Bhutanese and Nepali refugees. The second most popular language is Arabic, spoken by our Iraqi and Syrian patients. And then it's a toss-up from there between Somali, Swahili, Spanish, and Karen, or Burmese. For one medical assistant, an Iraqi refugee named Hanan Afalawi, who's been in Erie since the 90s, Her job entails more than just translation. It's a lot of patient education about American health customs that simply aren't part of care in their home countries. For example, they might not be used to keeping a detailed medical history, or trying an alternative measure before taking medication, or returning to the same provider repeatedly over the years. Always. This is how we teach them. Always. Here it's different than when you learned over there. Hanan told me she came to the clinic originally as a patient and then got hired as an Arabic interpreter. She worked there several months and then left to start her family. But she came back in 2007, once most of her five children had started school. So what are the age range of your kids? So they got? 24, 23, 21, 18, and three years old. Oh, three-year-old. That is that nice. It's a shock. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Hanan is a Shia Muslim and fled during Saddam Hussein's regime. She and her husband are from Samawa, which is a part of southern Iraq. But they didn't meet until they landed in the same refugee camp in Saudi Arabia. We fled from Saddam's regime and Ba'athir regime back then. We lived in a camp in Saudi Arabia for like a year and a half. And after that, we came to the state. In Iraq... Hanan went to university, and she hadn't been working as a biology teacher for too long when she had to flee. She had learned to speak English in college, and later that helped her land a job translating once she was in the United States. Now, 25 years later, here at Meds, Hanan is in a position in which she can support newly arrived refugees. When we came, there is not a lot before us to help us. So we did almost everything by ourselves walking, using bus, translating to ourselves, sometimes even the dictionary. We didn't have the cell phone back then, so the big dictionary I have to carry with me, even to get my driver license. So I wanted to be better for my community because I learned ahead of them. So I decided to help them translation-wise. And then I heard there is like a, in Central Tech, they teach nurses aid. So I decided to go there too. And uh, my boss, she's uh, encouraged me to do the vital sign and everything to learn, and why not? So now I'm doing both uh, nurse's aid and translation. 
Hanan says her first interaction with a new patient sometimes happens at their home. And so, yeah, by going to the home, you're really building that connection. Absolutely. And to see what they need sometimes, even like stuff for their house. Um, it's not even just for me. I will tell my other community. People need and this maybe blanket in the winter time, some clothes, jacket, shoes, this stuff. We collect all of us and gave it to them. So each um, family. And if you are meeting a new family and they're very new, you know, they've just come to Erie, they've been resettled. Do you ever talk about your own experience Absolutely, as a absolutely. That's how we uh, calm them down and, and make them relax. We went the same step, maybe even harder, because we don't have any interpreter, any people that speaks English, our language back then. Now it's much easier, especially, I mean, communities getting bigger and bigger and helping each other. Even transportation-wise, sometimes if I'm busy transportation, I have some people willing to help. I'll call them to give transportation and uh, helping, go doctors, go to school, go hospitals, whatever they need, shopping too. Mm -hmm. Go to the pharmacy and, and dealing how to buy uh, medications, uh, over the counter and stuff. Of course. Hanan's husband is a pharmacy tech, and their children have mainly chosen medical-related fields, including dentistry and physical therapy. Hanan herself was one of four daughters to get a biology degree. Now she says she's thinking about going back to nursing school, but isn't sure it's in the cards, at least for the time being. We've been helping them financially to the kids in colleges and everything. So maybe, maybe. I mean, I hope. So in a few years, maybe I'll go for LPN. It's in my thought. Even so, without that credential, it's clear that Hanan is making an impact. This agency, it's amazing. I have a lot of opportunity to work some other places, but I choose uh, to stay here to help people. And I don't know, in the future, I mean, if I sometimes even think about retirement, uh, I feel so bad for them. Just like my other family, you know, I don't want to leave them in the middle of the road because they depend on us, on everything, actually, medical-wise. So it's hard. Especially I've been here now for 12 years. It went so fast. I learned and I met a lot of people coming and goes and travel and made a lot of friends, and I hope I'm staying in their memory too. And among colleagues, Hanan's reputation seems to precede her. One of the nurses at meds, Lessa Bugara, had this to say. People call her doctor because when she translates, and she's very good at this, you know, for the years that she worked here. So they call her doctor. They have so much trust and believe in her. So, But that, I think, it's the good feeling and rewarding that those people appreciate what she's doing for them. Lessa is originally from Ukraine and came to the United States 25 years ago as a religious refugee. We were prosecuted for... A, we're persecuted. Right. We are Greek Catholic, and it's still in our region. The church doesn't have a status like a, it's, um, you know, the Orthodox, the Baptist, all the religion. The Baptists, not so much. They were prosecuted, too, and it was not able to practice their religion. But Greek Catholic, we baptize our children at home. We didn't have for all the time the Soviet Union exists, we didn't have our churches. We were not able to practice. 
In her home country, Lessa worked as a quality controller for a company that manufactured nuclear energy station appliances. When she and her husband decided to flee, their twin daughters were eight years old. At that point, she'd never considered nursing. I started as an interpreter. It was um, in the beginning of year after I came here to the America. That was my second job. The first job it was at Mill Creek Mall. It was a Kaufman's used to be the Macy's, <laughs> and apparently there was one lady that was a relative who worked here at Mads and. At Kaufman's, it was a seasonal work just for Christmas, and this lady introduced me to the lady that worked at Mets, and she said, oh, your English is very good, and you would, would you like to work in an interpreter, as a medical interpreter? And I was surprised. I said, yeah, it's maybe good, but not. I didn't have any training in medical, and my background, I didn't have any nothing to do with medical, didn't work in medical field. But she said, no, it's okay, we'll teach you, we'll help you, and maybe if you want to go for nursing later. And that, what <laughs> I like it because, you know, I was just like, well, I really, that was not my profession before, but they offered me that, what I said, oh, I would like to try. <laughs> That's something different. But So I work as interpreter here for year and a half, and then I went for nurse's aid through the Red Cross. They offered us training for a couple months, and I have two daughters, and they were in high school, and <laughs> we were busy with them, but I thought, you know, it would be challenging for me to go through the school. But there was an um, opportunity, there was a um, tri-state former Tri-State, now it's Forbes, they started its new program for LPNs, and I went for, they, they had accelerated program. So I was in school and I was working in meds. We always rotated. I was a front desk, a receptionist, and I was nurse's aide, and we <laughs> rotated for all the position, like we have to learn to know better the place. and. So that's what I did. I was surprised when I started nurses' aid. You know, it's more hands-on with people. And I said, that, well, I was surprised, but I really like it. And I thought, you know, if I can make a difference in someone's life and health, that that's very, very rewarding job. Lessa and her family love Erie, even if it's a much smaller city than their hometown of Lviv. It's uh, almost like a capital of Western Ukraine. Kiev is the capital of Ukraine, but Lviv, it's over a million people population. It's a big city. So when we came here, it was a little bit of, not to say shock, but it was, the year is a small city, so it was different. <laughs> Lviv is close to Poland, so Lessa speaks Polish, in addition to Ukrainian, Russian, and English. We had a new family today, and yeah, we have young people that are coming, especially because of conflict in eastern Ukraine. We have a lot of, we didn't have from Russia a long time, I would say. We have people who speak Russian from eastern Ukraine, but we didn't have probably like two or three families 10 years ago that we had from Moscow and St. Petersburg. There was one family. Yeah, but um, still a lot of refugees. Mm-hmm. 
Erie's refugee population isn't declining, even though the Trump administration has slashed annual resettlement ceilings from more than 100,000 people to just 18,000, the lowest in decades. Erie is trying to become an official welcoming city. Leaders there embrace refugees for the diversity they bring and their help stemming population losses. Erie offers a low cost of living, and there are strong ethnic communities, predominantly Iraqi, Nepalese, Syrian, Ukrainian, and Congolese. That all attracts secondary migrants and helps Erie retain refugees who first settle there. One issue is that federal support for refugees pretty much falls off after their first few months to a year in the U.S., and getting on their feet fully takes longer. But still, the structure in place today in Erie provides much more support to refugees than back when Lessa first arrived. I remember when they asked, why would you work here? I said, because I was a patient here, and I remember how it was difficult, how it was just we were not sure and scary, like I say, too, because you go and you don't know anyone, and it's just don't know system, and... When we met the lady that worked here, and she worked in the office, and then she spoke Russian at the time, and I was like, oh, I feel a little safer, I can understand. And the first time when I call and schedule myself appointment, and it was so hard, and the receptionist, she was very nice, and she said, I understood you, you're doing fine, and it was reassuring. I was like, okay, we can do this. Lessa isn't the only one at Meds whose passion for nursing came along somewhat unexpectedly. Meds Chief Operating Officer Colleen Wallace is a registered nurse, and after spending her entire working life in the field, she's pretty emphatic about the fact that her entry into nursing wasn't exactly the culmination of a lifelong dream. So 1982 is when I graduated from high school, and in 1982... Like, we didn't have the internet. I love the internet. I love that you can, like, go and look up a, like, any question. It pops into your head, and, and you can learn about all these things. At that time, all we had, we had our high school counselors. We had to really um, research things. So I'd love to tell you that I was born, you know, wanting to be a nurse, and that my whole life I was driven to, you know, helping people. I mean, I've always liked to help people, but I wasn't you know, from the time I was little, wanting to be a nurse. It was just something I kind of fell into. One of the things about nursing that ended up appealing to Colleen was the flexibility. She could have a family, and she left nursing for a bit to take care of her children. Ultimately, she returned to the field, and then in 2015, she was working in a prenatal program. That's where she first cared for a patient who was a refugee. This young girl was referred to me by one of the obstetricians, because she came over, she was, I think she was 19, obviously pregnant, but she had no family with her. So she was very isolated, and the doctor was noticing that she was depressed. So she referred her to this program that I was doing at the time. So I brought her in, and luckily, and this made the whole process much easier for me, she did speak English pretty well, so I didn't, there wasn't the language barrier. I mean, there was some but I could communicate with her. And, you know, I just sat with her once and I said, what, what are you afraid of? What worries you? And you know, it took a couple of visits for her, but it was like, you know, what am I going to do when I have this baby? How am I, simple things like, how am I going to get to the hospital? And she was from the Congo. She came here in November 
was very cold. <laughs> we had a lot of snow. She was alone. So I just can't even imagine how overwhelmed she felt. So I kind of worked with her. She had, of course, been referred to WIC and had gone to WIC and gotten the checks. She had no idea what to do with them. Truthfully, I didn't know what to do with them, so I looked it up and we learned together, took her to the store. When Colleen was researching services for this patient, she discovered meds and ended up meeting Patty, who later hired her. And she says community health is a juggling act in general, and delivering care to refugees requires even more coordination. It's a big responsibility for the interpreters because we're not just asking them to go and interpret. We're asking them to go interpret, but then also, you know, can you call and remind the patients about these appointments? Can you come here and tell me, did they go to the appointment? What do they have going on next? Because sometimes we don't get the consult notes back. Sometimes we don't get them at all. We have to call and remind them. But then we have real-time information on what's going on with this patient. Whether it's for blood work or imaging, we try to get them in so we don't lose them. You know, we sent you out to go see an endocrinologist. Before you even leave, we're trying to make an appointment so that they come back and we can say, okay, this is what they said, and we can reinforce what the endocrinologist said. Every day there's things that come up, but everybody works really well together. Colleen doesn't spend too much time doing clinical work these days, but she will do the mental health evaluations required for refugees as part of the health screening. Sometimes, too, if, you know, we did have somebody who was HIV positive, so I wanted to be in the room with her when she found out, so that for her follow-up care, if there was any questions, I wanted to be there with her and, you know, be supportive and then also let her know you know, that down the road, if there's questions, if there's concerns, she can even just come in and talk to us. I spent two days at meds talking with Colleen and her colleagues. And my second day there, I passed Colleen on my way out to get something from my car. She was standing in the waiting area, looking out of the window and watching a minivan leave the parking lot. She then said they're going the wrong way, and she ran outside. Here's what the situation was. Colleen and her colleagues had just been consulting with a family, and the child was having an allergic reaction. They had advised the family to go to the emergency room immediately. So when the car didn't go in the direction of the hospital, Colleen ran outside, where she saw that they'd made the short trip to their home. The father had stopped at home to pick up his wife and other child, a newborn, before going to the hospital. In the end, one of Colleen's co-workers, who speaks Arabic, the father's primary language, ended up accompanying them to the ER, where the son was given epinephrine. All of this was going on when it was only lunchtime, during a long and busy day. Later that afternoon, the Med's board of directors had a meeting. Like the staff at Med's, the board mirrors the patient population it serves. That's important for multiple reasons. One reason is it ties in directly to the financial health of the organization. Patty's been focused on helping meds become a federally qualified healthcare center, or a FQHC. The benefits of being a FQHC include more robust reimbursement for care provided to uninsured and underinsured patients. Right now, meds is considered a lookalike FQHC. That's not a full designation, but it does mean higher reimbursement rates for care. 
It was costing us $132 for each patient visit, but we were being reimbursed on the regular MA system at a rate of approximately or on average of about $38.50 a visit. So it's not rocket science to figure out that we wouldn't be in business for, for very long if we continued along that path. And the best way for us to resolve that was to work to become members of the FQHC system. One of the main requirements for clinics in underserved communities is that at least 40% of patients qualify for Medicaid. Meds far exceeds that threshold, and at least half the board has to include patients. Here again, Meds far exceeds the mandate. Three-quarters of board members are current or former patients. And after the board meeting that day I was there, I talked with one of the board members named Davy Gimmery. Davy and his family resettled from Nepal to Erie in 2016. When they left, Davy had been in Nepal 25 years. He fled Bhutan at 18 years old to escape ethnic cleansing. We were living in Nepal. I lived for about 25 odd years there and then finally got my destination. And thankfully, U.S. government accepted to take the refugees and they started bringing probably in 2008 And then I was resettled in 2016. I literally stepped into this very holy soil on the 10th of May 2016. In Nepal, Devi was the principal of a school with 1,200 students and more than 100 teachers. In Erie, he started out working at a factory, then as a custodian, and now just three years later, He's a certified nursing assistant and is training others to become home health care aides. And he recently became the vice chair of the board at MEDS. Assimilating with the people of varied culture, working with them, trying to uplift them and show at least what is what, that is special. That is special. I have been to many clinics and all these things. They don't have interpreter service. They don't have, and even doctors sometimes... Davy has plans to advance his nursing credentials, and his current employer is encouraging him to do so. They just told me, Davy, why don't you go for RN? Because they have plans to give up to 22,000 bucks for anybody who goes for RN, any staff who would like to go for RN or LPN, licensed practical nurse. So I never knew that. And they just called me and why don't you go for that? And I said, yep, I will. I will. Because I still have uh, 25 years to spend as a worker until 70 probably. I can work. I'm about to be 50, so I'll go. As for meds, where Davy has been a patient since 2016, he's seen how the organization has improved under Patty's leadership in a year's time. It's not just about getting the books in order and addressing language barriers, cultural differences, and trauma. The organization also has to be responsive and adaptive and take risks and experiment with initiatives aimed at patients' more basic physical health. Erie's demographics in general, not just specific to the city's refugee population, suggest an urgent need. For example, the poverty rate is 17% nearly 50% higher than national and state averages, and it's rising. And a recent community health study of the county documented an increase in both diabetes and hypertension cases. Rates among residents overall are higher than the rest of the state and country. 
Patty says the big issues for refugees at the clinic are also diabetes, hypertension, and tobacco use. Diabetes isn't just for the American-born. Our patients come in with diabetes and prediabetes, and what's the first thing that any clinician would do? Well, we're going to send you to the diabetes self-management education classes that are developed by the American Diabetes Association. We sent a few patients, and they come back and say, why are we there? We don't eat that food. It was one of those aha moments, and because I work with students, I was able to engage an MPH, Master's in Public Health student, to work with us and develop, take those same ADA classes and develop ethnic diabetes self-management education classes. We just finished up our first series with our Arabic-speaking group, so we had Iraqis and Syrians. And each one of our class sessions, when we talked about food or cultural ways, whatever, we were able to address it with something they were used to. At the end of the entire series, we had lunch at one of our local Iraqi restaurants and did our best to make sure that everyone ate a healthy lunch. So... It was all fun, and now we're working with two of our African countries, our Swahili speakers from the Congo and our Somali speakers from Somalia. And we're starting to introduce, we're teaching all the things that everyone else teaches about diabetes and how to manage diabetes, but it will be the foods that will be different. And we we also take everybody grocery shopping and make sure that they get healthy foods. We have some grant money, so we buy them some healthy groceries. And at the end, we have a healthy cooking class Or we have lunch somewhere, whichever we can arrange. So, and after that, it'll be our Asian population, which will be our Nepali speakers and our Burmese. When Patty came on board, the agency also was struggling with substantial debt. It accumulated mainly because its funding structure wasn't set up to offset the cost of providing care. The new reimbursement structure has made a big difference. Patty says she almost has the debt under control. And when we talked, she expected to open a second clinic in a matter of months, where the intent is to serve not just refugees, but the community at large. There is need. We have more requests for appointments than what we can fulfill right now. So we're at that point where we need to have enough operations money to support hiring additional staff and getting the other place opened. Our site is at one of the local neighborhood centers that has, they host the second largest WIC program in the county, and they have after-school programming, they have a senior center, and they're also located within public housing. So we'll be able to serve some of the folks that we're already serving. It'll be easier for them to get there, but there are plenty of people who are in need in that area, which is something we have to demonstrate. We actually have to show the federal government that they're is a population that needs to be served. And we have that information and we'll be using it and we're looking forward to going there. And be sure to check out part two of our series about refugee healthcare. It's an episode reported in Lancaster, a small city that's a major resettlement hub, where refugees arrive at rates per capita well above the average resettlement community. Special thanks to Patty Stubber, Colleen Wallace, Hanan Al-Falawi, Davy Gimmery, Lessa Bouguera, and Sarasoti Karki for taking time to talk with us. 
Funding for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and the AARP Foundation, along with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. The Pennsylvania Action Coalition is housed at the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium, a subsidiary of Public Health Management Corporation. You can find out more about us and our programs at paactioncoalition.org. Follow us on social media at PA Action. We'd love to hear from you. Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media is our producer, and we had production assistance from Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.